0: You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to and during any question. If you can't afford one, the court appoints one for you. Do you understand your rights? or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My descriptions of the crime scenes, what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Y'all, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story today Um happened where I'm from, uh, six generations of my family and everything else, and it's a really, really crazy story, and I don't believe it's ever been covered before, but I've been thinking about it for a while. We're going to call this episode Reign of Terror in Clinton, okay? So I'm originally from East Feliciana Parish in uh, the town of Clinton in... You know, that's where I was born and raised. Well, I wasn't born, I was born in Baton Rouge, but I was raised there. And my daddy was raised there. Uh, um, And my grandfather was the judge there until he passed away. And just my whole life. And, And I still go through there. Three or four times a week now. When I go to my country place, I'm going to tell you a crazy story. All right, and then all, all these people, I know them. My family knows them. I know. I know the law enforcement officers. The of worst case, and I just got off the phone with one of them, uh, uh, Joel Odom, and in just a crazy, crazy story. But I'll take you back to October the fourth in 1998, in between 5:15 p.m. At 5.40 p.m., a guy named Gregory C. Brown, along with a, a Jonathan Booth and a Brian Ryzen and a Brian Williams and Eldritch Thompson, decided they were traveling. They're going to come from Baton Rouge to go to Clinton uh, to rob a dope dealer and named Little Man. Now, Little Man lived in... What we call Rileyville in Clinton, and that's uh, just behind the school I graduated from, and everything. It's it's a it's a mostly black community that, uh, but it's still inside the, the town limits of Clinton. Okay, but you, when you ride into Rileyville, there's only one street in and one street out, and then it it kind of spreads out into the neighborhood. So these idiots, you know, are know that little man was was a uh, we'll say allegedly but he was a dope dealer all right and so what do dope dealers do or dope heads do they rob dope dealers when they get the chance because they don't have the money to do anything else so they drove from baton rouge to clinton which is like 45 minutes y'all and they were in a 1984 gray chevrolet van uh, which was registered and in, in Brown's name, okay. And so they get there and they go driving to Rileyville. And being the geniuses that they are, they think they're going to Little Man's house. Well, they pull up. Actually, it was a trailer, I believe. Oh, so it was on Wilson Street. It's in back back in, like I said, Rileyville, okay. And they they pull up the house where they they thought the little man lived. And Jonathan Booth. Entered the the house uh, unarmed, y'all. I guess he was just gonna strong arm rob him, but he had the wrong house. And he, when he entered, he sees a guy named Davy Thompson. Now, Davy Thompson definitely was not a dope dealer. He was actually a correctional officer. Sorry, fu- sorry about that. Oh. He was actually a correctional officer um, in. So when they enter the trailer, uh, David Thompson is there and now he's not related to Eld- Eldridge Thompson. I told y'all is one of the bad guys that drove from Baton Rouge. And it, when they're in there, Boof says, Hey, Hey dude, where's little man. And Thompson said, Hey, little man's not here. And, and, um, uh, so Boof then turn around and he leaves the trailer, right? I mean, you think it's over with exact opposite. He leaves the trailer and when got a pistol and then he comes back inside the trailer with the pistol and he attacked Thompson, uh, they fought and it was like a pretty severe scuffle. I mean, they're they rolling around, et cetera. And, and Thompson managed to get the pistol away from booth and the, um, uh, But they were still fighting, right? And while they're fighting for control of the pistol, um, somehow it's believed that Brown actually was able to pull the trigger and Thompson got shot in the thigh. Um, Then, while they're still fighting, and now Thompson is is shot in the leg, they're still fighting for the pistol. Thompson was able to squeeze the pistol and he shot Booth in the upper arm, right? And Booth hauls ass back outside where the, the the other four idiots are, and they jump in the van, and they haul ass out of Rileyville. Now, this one – when you get to the end of Rileyville, you could either, could have turned on Highway 10 back at the time and, and took, took a right, and you're right there in the town of Clinton. But they took – the other way in what we call morrison street Marston street runs by the confederate cemetery and where the health unit is and all that but it's, it's not really any houses on that street but you, you have the health unit and uh it's a this look it's a small blacktop road there's not even a, a divider line on it and it's got a couple of sharp turns but then it comes up a hill right by the Marston House Plantation, which is, you know, I don't know, been there since probably the Civil War times. But there's an intersection right there. And they sh- shoot across the, the intersection and they run over uh, a white Toyota Camry. They they crashed. And, and I, I was talking to Joel Odom, who was, who was a sergeant at. At this time for the Clinton Police Department, and now he's something over investigations for the Department of Corrections. But so I called him. I said, "Tell me about that day." And he said, "He said, man, it was freaky because they they almost like jumped from coming up that hill and landed on top of the car." And he said, "It was a total smash crash accident." to the point where the doors were jammed and he said they had to climb out the windows of the vehicle and they took off on foot, right? So, um, so Brown and Booth, and, and Booth is the one that had been shot in the arm, y'all. And, um, and then and the rest of them got into the crash right, right where I told you, at the corner of Bank and Morrison Street. And because they ran the stop, that's that's they ran the stop sign, but it's a, a steep incline. I guess it just they ran up the side of this Toyota Camry, who was driven by Miss Sarah Cheney, who was sixty eight years old at the time. And the like I said, the van was disabled. They had they um, climb out the windows, and they they all haul ass. They ran like little bitches into the nearby wooded area. Well, the so someone called the cops and, and told them, uh, or they called the sheriff's office who handled nine one one dispatcher, not only for East Santa Paris Sheriff's Office, but for the town of Clinton itself. And they said, look, this this crash just happened, and then these five guys just ran into the woods. Now, there's not a lot of woods there, y'all. There's, there's you know, a couple houses here and there, but the, the high school I graduated from is like 200 yards to the right, so... They're panicking, and they run. Now, Brian Risen, uh, he ran all the way up the the street until he got to what we call Plank Road, which is the main street in Clinton, and, and it runs dead through the center of town uh, all the way to Highway 10. But where he came up the hill, there was an the old gas station on the left, the mobile station, and it's been closed forever. But across the street was... Uh, Car wash and, and and another little store. When when Joel Odom and them, I think he was t- told me he was riding with uh, uh, Gordon uh, Jordan Charlet, who again the Charlet's, uh, uh Uncle George Charlay, his daddy was my daddy's best friend, and um, uh, I called their mama Aunt Sue. But they were riding together, and they got the response, and then they see rising at. The car wash, and Joel said they got out on him and and drew down on him, etc and and he he complied. They arrested him and you know, or detained him, if you will. But you know, advised him was rice, and he wouldn't say dick. He wouldn't say anything. So the uh, the rest of the guys, y'all, are you know. So that the, the Joel and them got Brian rising at five uh, at five twenty nine p.m. And they, they, when they pulled up, he, before they arrested him, they saw he was, he was trying to get a ride back to Baton Rouge, right? And then they arrested him. But meanwhile, Brown and Eldritch Thompson and Brian Williams came out of the woods on Feliciana Drive. Again, not far from the, the crash scene. Uh, and they roll up on a guy that, that's working in his yard, I don't know his yard, they as as Ikey Roberts. And now I, I my family's known his family forever. I, the long time I mean, born and raised in Clinton and he was fifty five years old at the time. So he would have been just about ten years younger than my daddy and and my daddy's known him. I called him about it and he said, Yeah, you know I of course I knew Mr. Ike also is what I called him. But he's just a really good guy, right? uh, uh so they they at 5.30 p.m. that Ike Mr. Ike was in his shed working on a gape for a, a horse stall, and his wife Sharon was inside their home. Um, and Mr. Ike said that Gregory Brown approached him shirtless and he was sweaty and out of breath. <clears throat> and He said, Hey, man, uh, um, I'll get I'll, I'll pay you some money to drive me, uh, in my my three friends to Baton Rouge and Ike was like, am mm, I'm, no, I'm not gonna do that You know, but again, Ike lived there his, his entire life and he knew everybody and but he didn't know these guys, right? The uh that but they were like, Come on man, but um we'll give you four hundred dollars or we'll give you five hundred dollars. Ike's like no I'm not driving you to Baton Rouge and in then they said, we'll give you $1,000. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not driving to and Rouge. Get off on property. And they're like, we'll give you $1,200. And he said, no. Um, so then Edwards Thompson and Brian Williams grabbed a rope, and they attacked Ike, and they were trying to tie his hands, but Ike was fighting him. He, he was a big, strong country guy, right? Um, and while they were fighting they were, they were attempting to rope him his hands, the, uh, they, they saw his 1990 gray Ford diesel pickup truck, and they were like, look, dude, just give us the keys. And Ike was like, the keys are in the truck. Get out of here. Just leave me alone. I mean, basically, he did not know what's going to happen, right? I mean, you're trying to get tie me up. And, and so one of the guys goes to the truck, but guess what happened? They couldn't start it because it was a diesel truck. And then they didn't know how to start it. So the, when, when they couldn't start it, Brown got, like, super pissed. And, and he flew into a fit of rage. Um, and what does he do? He picks up a 16-ounce Craftsman claw hammer. And then him and Thompson and Williams began to beat uh, Ike with with the hammer. Y'all, they, they tied a rope around his neck. And Thompson and Williams held him down uh, while Brown began to beat Mr. Ikey. And then, look, Joel said they beat him severely. And they hit him re- repeatedly in the head. Boom, 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 with a claw hammer, y'all, and his arms. Now, he's trying to defend himself naturally. Right? He's got his arms up, but they're just beating on him. In uh, While this is going on, Thompson and Williams let go of Ike and they ran back to the truck and they're trying to get a start again and they were able to get a start. Uh, And they were like – they told Brown, say, come on, man, let's go. And Brown was like – he was too busy beating on Ike with the hammer. And so they left. They haul ass in the truck. When Brown was done with him, they had beat him – like I said repeatedly, he had he had a depressed skull fracture, he had a concussion, he had a broken left arm and a broken left hand, and his his forearm required surgery, and uh, they had to put a, a plate and seven screws in his arm to repair it, and the the beating was so bad that a portion of Mister Ikey's right ear was torn off from the force of the claw, the claw hammer, right? And, and you know, he, he would end up spending uh, three or four days in the hospital, but he also is now permanently or became permanently disabled in his left hand, can never use it again. The world has become a smaller place, and people are traveling more freely between countries than ever before. And companies are doing more business outside of their home countries than ever before. The geniuses at Rosetta Stone saw this trend beginning to develop years ago and have dedicated decades toward researching and refining the best and most efficient way to teach someone a new language. Rosetta Stone has been one of our most loyal sponsors here at Real Life Real Crime and The Daily Show, and that's because many of you out there have trusted Rosetta Stone to prepare you for everything from a family reunion to a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip to a business trip in a faraway country. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program in the galaxy. Rosetta Stone's been there for us with a great product at a great price. Rosetta Stone is the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years with millions of users. Rosetta Stone's intuitive process helps you pick up a new language naturally so you retain what you learn, and their true accent speech recognition feature is like having a personal trainer. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Real Life Real Crime and The Daily Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Au revoir. Because yeah, of these idiots. So, Brown is still beating on him. Thompson and Williams haul ass in, uh, in Mr. Ikey's truck. And Brown's like, oh, fuck, at some point. And, and it, he's, he's, so he starts beating Ike, and he begins to run after the truck. Basically, I think his homies just hauled ass and left him, right? And Brown's starting to run after the truck. Uh, uh, and when he did that, Mr. Ike ran inside his house, and he said he last saw Brown chasing after the truck, running down Feliciana Drive toward the home of a lady named Miss Myrtle Roberts, who was his mother and his next-door neighbor. So Mr. Ikey, beaten, skull-crushed, arms destroyed, and everything else, was able to make it inside, and he told his wife to call 911, and then then he collapses, y'all. So, again, now, this is a fluid situation. The cops have already been made aware of the crash that happened. They they don't know. Oh, they also been made aware of the shooting in Rileyville, where um, um, the other Mr. Thompson, you know, got shot in, in the arm when he was fighting with the bad guy. And but this call come now comes out from from um, Mr. Ike's, Mr. Ikey's wife and. They're like, hey, you know, my husband's been beat, and they're they're headed towards mother-in-law's house. And so it goes out. And one of the guys that got the call, I, I never remember, you got the Clinton police responding to the shooting down Rileyville. You got uh, police officers responding to the crash. You got the other idiot that's, that Joel and them got arrested at the car wash trying to get a ride to Baton Rouge. But Lieutenant... Billy DeMoss. Now, B- Billy and I grew up together. I think he was my oldest, not second oldest brother's age, but I've known him my entire life that the, he still lives in Clinton and he's married to a great girl, a great lady named uh, Donna, and she and I used to work together at Dixon Correctional Institute. Um, but Billy gets the call. He knows uh, Ike's truck hit in... Been there forever, and they still own. He and his wife own frog, frog skin graphics on on Plank Road, right outside of Clinton, to this day. So he's no longer in law enforcement. But anyway, so he gets the description, uh, and and they put out the description of of a Mistakey Roberts truck over the dispatch radio, and that that it was being driven by two black males, and around six oh six p.m. A, a reserve deputy, Christopher Charlet, who has got to be one of the kids of Jordan and them, of uh, uh, Uncle George's. I think Uncle George had died shortly after that, and he was having surgery at Lane Hospital. But anyway, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure I've met Christopher, but he was he was a reserve deputy. He didn't have any lights in his vehicle, but he knew Ike and Robert's truck. And he drove towards—he hears it on the radio— and he drives towards Plank Road, which I told y'all is the main drag through Clinton. And uh, he he sees the truck, but it's, it's five to six miles outside of Clinton on Plank Road, uh, and it turned on nine fifty nine. Now that is, if you go out of Clinton headed towards Baden Ridge, nine fifty nine is one of the side roads you can take and come up through the middle of Baden Ridge. But Charley, the reserve deputy. Was driving his personal vehicle and he couldn't. He, he, there was no, no, not many people had cell phones back then, y'all. And he heard about Ike Roberts' truck. He sees it. He sees the two black males driving it, but he didn't have any way to call in and say that he's chasing it, right? But um, and I, I guess he had the scanner, but not not a police radio per se. But he followed him and they he followed him up nine fifty eight and they stopped Ike's truck on uh it, buy some houses on nine fifty eight and uh, Charlet, uh told a resident to call nine one one and he actually was able to use his firearm and, and arrest Thompson and Williams who gave up they didn't even fight right but so char called. The Clinton police at six o eight p.m. and told them that he had them in custody. All right, now let's back up. Meanwhile, all this is going on. Everything's fluid at one time. Look, this doesn't happen in Clinton, Louisiana. All right, I mean, I could tell you a handful of murders uh, before this time that I knew in my entire life, and this is an ongoing situation. They don't know that it's all connected. The shooting in Rileyville, the car crash, the you know, getting the guy at, at the uh, at the car wash. Then Mister Ike Roberts is almost dead. Um, uh, You know that that call comes in, and and Charlay gets him up on on nine fifty nine and arrests him. But meanwhile, Gregory Brown y'all is still on the loose, and he's the one that did the most severe beating of of, of Ike, Mister Ikey. Um, but. Guess what? Gregory Brown wasn't from Clinton, and he, he didn't know the town. And so he's hiding out on Feliciana Drive, but he's desperate, right? What do you want to do? I want to get out of town. And and he's desperate for some kind of transportation, some kind of ride to get out of town. Um, and like I told you, but before he went inside his house, Mr. Ike Roberts saw uh, Brown approaching the home of of Miss Myrtle Roberts, who was who was a widow at the time, y'all, and eighty five years old. So Brown attempts to steal Miss Roberts' green nineteen ninety one Ford pickup truck, but he wasn't able to do so because the doors were locked. And he, when he's trying to get in the truck, he actually leaves a bloody uh, fingerprint on the driver's side door handle. And, le- and later on, when you know, state police, everybody comes in and, and works it. They they're putting a, they know it's this massive ongoing crime scene, and they get the DNA off the the bloody the bloody fingerprint off, off the truck. And later on, it, it comes back that the DNA had both Brown's DNA and Mister Ike Roberts' DNA, um, and the print itself matched Brown's left. Ring finger, all right? So Brown's trying to break into Miss um, merle Merle-Roberts' truck, and then he's like, fuck it, I got to do something else. And so he goes to the house, and he kicks in the back door. When he does this, he's not thinking, just not thinking about leaving the blood on, on the handle of the truck. When he kicks in the door, he left a muddy shoe print on the back of the door, and... A smear of blood on the outside of the door frame and doorknob, guess what? We got Brown's DNA. All right. Later on, later years however many years later, when all this evidence comes back. I'm just telling you there's a reason I'm telling you all this. How about that? So he's leaving his you know, you got Mr. Ike who can ID DM. Uh you got his his bloody DNA mixed with Mr. Ikey's on on Miss Ms. Robert's truck. Then he kicks in the back door, and he leaves more blood on the outside of the door frame, uh, you know, which comes back to him. But it doesn't stop him. He goes inside, and Miss Robert's standing there. She's 85 years old, y'all. And this winter, he grabs her and then throws her to the ground. And when he did that, he, uh, he broke her wrist. And he was like, "Give me the car keys. I mean, give me the truck keys. Give me the truck keys." And Miss Roberts was she's laying on the floor with a broken wrist, and she was she like, you know, I don't know where they're at. And and she she wasn't able to give them to him, y'all. So what happens? Brown begins to ransack the house looking for them. Okay, and Miss Roberts was on the, on the ground injured uh, while Brown's tearing up her house, and he's he's you know, going through drawers and everything else. Well, guess what else he's doing? He's leaving blood all through the house. And then later on, once again, it would come back to be his DNA, okay? But guess what? He couldn't find the keys. And then it was like, fuck it, and I'm leaving. But before he left, um, and almost everybody back then had landlines like I took, you know, hardly anyone had a cell phone in 1998, but uh, he grabs the phone on the wall and he rips it uh, uh, off the wall. So sh- she can't call and get help. Right. So he leaves. And, the, uh, now Joyce Lepinus, another, that's the family. Actually, the, the, the related to Billy DeMoss, the Lieutenant I told you about, and, uh, but she was she was a friend of the Roberts family, and she went over to check on her and she found Miss Roberts on the floor uh, inside the home just minutes after attack and, and of course, they took Miss Roberts to the hospital um and and emerged in an ambulance just it, actually they took' them, it was so fluid and so going on by the time the ambulance got there, they got Mr. Ikey. And now his mama and they put him in the same ambulance and they took him to the hospital. All right. Brown is in a shit world of shit now, right? And and he's done all this damage and all these robbery attempts and now he's pissed. So he moves on to the next house on the street, on Feliciana Drive. And y'all, this is I mean, this is a horrible story anyway. But this is where it really gets bad, okay? And that y'all, this house was owned by Mr. William and Miss Ann Gay, and they were 62 years old. And uh, Mr. William had worked his entire life at, at Georgia Pacific and in, in copolymer. Now, that's that was the paper mill, y'all, and 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 basically in between East and West Feliciana Parish where a lot of people worked and from, you know, that area up there is really rural and we still grow trees there to this day. And they it employed so many people for so many years. And I think it's closed down now. But anyway, he worked there his entire life, right? And then his retirement in – he's been married to miss Ann for 45 years and y'all she was 60 years old and a registered nurse and they were good people all right um they had uh three grown children and they had lived in their two-bedroom house at at 12286 Feliciana Drive for only approximately one year you know they downsized the kids have grown and gone um and when this monster comes up to them, they were actually sitting on their on their patio um, having a drink, and the, um Miss Ann was cooking a roast in the oven, right? So they're just living good, clean lives. So, y'all, the guy that uh, Jonathan Booth that, who got shot during the initial the uh fight that in Rileyville when he went inside the trailer and it, it, they says no, the little man's not here and uh, with mr. Thompson, the correction officer, he goes back outside and gets a, gets a firearm they fight both of them end up getting shoot shot so it, he ends up running away and but he hides in a house on Riley Street uh, um, in Miss Miss London, who who came home, find him hiding in her in her house, and she attempted to give him medical assistance uh, for the gunshot wound. And around ten o'clock, she called Booth's mother. Now she actually knew Booth. Uh, the in then like I said, Booth was hiding in her house. She gives him medical assistance, and she calls. Boost mom, is like, hey, he, he's here and he's shot and I'm trying to take care of his wound. And the, both Boost mama and sister were listening and they said, look, you, you need to call the police, right? So she did and the police came into her apartment and it was only a, about a mile away from the crash scene, y'all, where Ms. Sarah Chaney, they ran over her Camry. Um, and so they... The police respond, and they get, they make the arrest. Let's fast forward. Now, between 9.50 p.m. and 10 p.m., the, the Baton Rouge Fire Department and city repli- police responded to reports of a car that was engulfed in flames in the 1400 block of Emma Street. Now, again, this is 45 minutes away Al, from Clinton. Uh, so what do they do? They roll up, they put out the fire, and... Unfortunately, when they put out the fire, they see their two badly burned bodies inside the, the vehicle, and it was a red 1993 Ford Escort. So, detectives uh, are called to the scene naturally, and they run the license plate number, even though it was burned up, on the Ford Escort, and discovered that the car belonged to William and Ann Gay from Clinton, right? Um, when they took the body and I don't know which one of y'all or actually it was william gay when they took took the body from the rear seat of the vehicle and they were able to you know to search him and look look through what was left of his clothing, they found a driver's license that belonged to william gay um and that was still in his wallet in his pants pocket, and later on the, you know they worked it as, as all crime scenes are worked. The autopsy showed that, that Mr. William Gay had been shot three times, once in the chest and twice in the abdomen or the stomach. And the same thing when they took Miss Ann Gay out and they took her to the autopsy, they found she had been shot uh, two times also, once in the neck and once in the stomach. And, and all these shots had been in a very close range, y'all, and in that they could tell that because of the tattoo or the stifling. Uh, when you're when you shoot somebody up close, you get the not only does the bullet come out of the firearm, but the burnt gunpowder uh, uh, comes out in the, the barrel. And if you're close enough, it'll actually embed in the skin and leave what we call tattooing. So, back to it on the day of um, around ten thirty p.m the Baton Rouge PD calls the law enforcement in Clinton and, and say, Hey, you know, we got a, a William and Ann gay here that have been murdered and, uh, and their car has been burned up. Now this, at, when they got the phone call, the Clinton, both the sheriff's office and the Clinton PD were still investigating this whole huge crime spree. I've told y'all about, right? Uh, So they didn't know that the gays were gone. And so they they actually went to their house. And again, that was at 12286 Feliciano Drive. And they found the garage door open. And they found the door leading from the patio to the kitchen was open. And an unopened can of beer and an overturned glass of wine on the patio. And guess what? The roast was burning out in the oven, right? So at the time William Mr. William and Miss Ann Gay's bodies were discovered, Gregor Brown was the only guy that was left out of the shitheads that the cops hadn't got yet. All right. Uh like I said, Booth had been found wounded and bleeding inside Miss London's home, and then Ryzen and Thompson and Williams had all been in the custody of the Clinton police for several hours. Um on the next day, October fifth, nineteen ninety-eight, the Clinton police uh, visited Mister. Ikey in the hospital, Mister. Ikey Roberts, and they showed a photo lineup. And guess what? They Mister. Ikey was the, all the beating and, and the concussion and the crushed skull and everything else. He was able to pick Gregory Brown as his attacker from the photo lineup. you know, I know. Y'all know that's a six pack. And they would have had his uh, photograph, and, and, you know, they get five other photos that look just like him. And, and would have told Mr. Ikey, hey, we don't want you to make any guess. Um, you know, if there's someone you recognize in this photo as your attacker, let me know. And he immediately picks them out, y'all. And guess what? He did it. Um, he did it. Not only did he did it, he told the cops, he said, look, I distinctly remember that this guy had only one good eye. And so the Baton Rouge police, what do they do then, they go and they get a warrant for Gregory Brown's arrest, all right? And that was on October fifth, 1998, based primarily upon Mr. Ike Roberts' uh, picking him out of the photo lineup as his attacker and the witness statements that he was seen approaching the gays' residence after leaving Miss Myrtle Roberts' home. Um, the police then do what they do. They're going to hunt him, right? So they go to uh, Brown's primary residence, which is on Bam Street in Baton Rouge, which he, he lived there with his wife. Um, They've been married for five months and their infant daughter. But he wasn't home. Oh, shit, if I was him, I wouldn't have been home either. And then on October sixth, 1998, two days after the murders, um, the detectives learned that Brown had a, also had another residence at 4747 Frey Street in Baton Rouge. So instead of just going up and knocking on the door, they get a search warrant for that residence, all right? And they roll up on it the, uh, in force and mass. You know, this guy is a, is a stone cold killer, obviously. Or, in they roll up on him, and when they get there, they find Brown's father, who was a. Uh, they found Brown's father, who had a, a Papa lock employee, um, trying to unlock a Chevrolet Camaro that was parked behind the house. Y'all remember Papa Log? That's, you know, you lock your shit in, in, in the car. You had to call them out. They charge you like 150 bucks to get your keys out, and that was a big deal back in the day. But the officers found them in the backyard. They serve the search warrant on the house, and they go in the house, and they find it's almost empty of, of anything. Uh, um, the only thing I think they found was uh, a broom, and a mop that were in the living room area, and the house had been totally sanitized. Why, right? So they start to talk to the neighbors, and they're working in the hood, the the neighborhood, trying to find out more information. And one of the neighbors tell the detectives that Brown's father, the guy that was in the backyard of Poplock, had already made two trips to the house and removed a, Basically everything from the inside, um, but during the search, the officials, the, the officials, the detectives discovered a trash can sitting on the front porch, and guess what? Inside the trash can, they discovered two pieces of duct tape and a telephone with a smear of blood on the handset, which was the the smear of blood once again would later come back to be matched to Brown's DNA. And, um, and a piece of the gray telephone cord that had been cut, and the c- telephone cord was consistent to the cord found binding uh, the hands of Ann Gay in in the back seat of the vehicle near the body of Mister William Gay. Crazy, right? I mean, it's good police work. Stuff's going on. But there's a problem. Brown is still. On the run, and on December twenty third, nineteen ninety eight, a confidential informant called Deputy U.S. Marshal Brent Ballard and told him that Brown was in the Baton Rouge area uh, to visit his wife and child. And the CI or confidential informant said that Brown was hiding inside a single family, single family, single story white and pink house to the right of six three six zero Osborne Street, Madden Rouge. And so what do the detectives do? They go get a search warrant and you know they're gonna roll up in force. The all the stuff is coming together and they gotta get him in into custody before he kills someone else. So they go to the judge, judge gives them the search warrant and they roll up in mass, uh, surround the residents, kick the door Um. And guess what they found? Brown was hiding, y'all. He had been on the run for 82 days at this point, so they never gave up. All right. Uh. uh, And they got him in on July 22nd, 1999. An East Baton Rouge Parish grand jury indicted Brown. For the October 4th, 1998, first degree murders of Mr. William and Miss Ann Gay. And they specified that the first degree murder charges were based on RS 1430A and one and three. Um, y'all, it means this is a death penalty case. All right. So, you know, that after on a first degree murder case, the, of course, the warrant would have stood, but you still have to take it to a grand jury because it's such a serious charge. And so now they've gotten all the DNA back, and they the, they get the secret grand jury, and they go in, they present this whole shit show of crimes that they've done. And more importantly, though, that uh, the DNA and everything that Brown had left through his murderous trail, including— the, the, the gays being burned up in the vehicle, right? So, again, he's charged uh, with first-degree murder. And on May the 1st, 2002, Brown goes on trial for his life, for capital murder, right? And I'm going to stop it there. I'm, I'm going to tell you the rest next week. It's, it's really, really... Disturbing, but if anybody deserves to die and be on death row and be executed, Gregor C. Brown is that piece of shit, right? So, um, real life, real crime stuff, y'all. The you know, you got a lot of stuff going out. I'm gonna be telling some of these old personal stories, and this one I've been thinking about for. Ever and the, I just want, I just actually came from Clinton today and I'm like, you know, and I drove down, I drove down Silliman Street past the Morrison house right where the crash occurred and past, you know, their houses and everything else. And so I wanted to tell you the story, but there's more to it and I want you to hear it and we'll finish it next week. But real life, real crime, I want to thank everybody for listening, liking, and sharing and following every Tuesday, y'all you're going to get an original real-life real-crime episode. I know I I get comments every day. People are like, oh, there's no more original real-life real-crime. Well, that's not true. I drop them on Tuesdays. And, yes, it's original real-life real-crime on Tuesdays are separate and different than the real-life real-crime daily show, which comes out on Monday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So don't forget it's to- two totally different shows. Uh, I, I love doing The Daily Show. I mean, it's awesome with Mike and Jim. We have a good time doing it, and it's very interesting. But I know it's not what my OG life are signed up for. So some of you love that show, and I get it. Some of you don't. You just want these stories, and and you're going to continue to get them. I just think it gets lost in the confusion because we're dropping five days a week. Uh the, the people think over oh, the tuning in and it's all on the same feed y'all on the same distribution channel or channels. And so you go like to listen on Wednesday or Monday or Thursday. If you don't listen, you know, if you subscribe to the original real life real crime, you will automatically get that the original real life real crime episode downloaded to your phone. So you'll know it'll be there. You can get it first but go listen to the daily show too, which is awesome. And I want to thank my Patreon and convicts and Apple subscribers. Thank you so much for subscribing. If we owe you something, let us know. I hope you enjoyed your episode. Sheriff's office. I put up a couple weeks ago. I'm going to be putting up another one in, in the next two weeks for y'all. So enjoy your benefits today. You're going to get this one a little bit late. Naturally. Um, but normally you get it, or you're still going to get it commercial free. But normally you get it earlier than this. But next week's you'll you'll get before Monday. All right. Now, swim someone who isn't me. That's the acronym. Swim someone who isn't me. Guess what? It's a new podcast by Woody Overton, and it's going. To, it's not going to be true. Well, there's going to be a lot of crimes in it, but. Uh, it's not nece- it's necessarily a true crime podcast. It's more society and culture, and it's, it's going to be crazy stories that someone <laughs> who isn't me have lived through their lives. And, and uh, we're about to put that out on blast, and, and if you like to hear me tell stories, that's all I'm going to be doing is telling stories from youth from the first time swim got it, ever got into trouble to all the way through his life and in adulthood and everything else and swim someone who isn't me a podcast by Woody Overton produced by envision podcast studios and uh, again it, I want I just got back from Wisconsin y'all y'all know about the Lopa hunt Louisiana Oregon procurement agency I was so blessed to get to be um, with Miss Missy Jewell and her her son uh, Jacob, who's a, I mean I'm sorry Jack, who's a, who it was Jack's brother and her s- other son Reese who who was killed, or and they were able to use his organs. Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency stepped in and helped the family, and his kidney went to another young man Jacob, who I got to guide. Uh, on numerous hunts in Wisconsin. So we had the families there together. It's a beautiful thing. One family whose loved one died. The other family whose loved one is alive because of LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, and people becoming organ donors. Um, You don't have to be from the state of Louisiana to sign up to be a hero. You can be from... Idaho, right? If you want to become an organ donor, go to lopa.org, take two minutes, fill out the questionnaire or whatever it's called, and become an organ donor, be a hero, y'all. People are dying every single day waiting on these transplants. And I was so blessed to get to, to know the young man and the family, naturally, that Reese is the hero who was an organ donor, whose kidney went to Jacob, and I think it was like six or seven years, Jacob told me, and he's doing good, y'all. I mean, he's alive because of that. So go sign up to be an organ donor. Um, don't forget about our Real Life Real Crime Community app. That's where if you're going to send me a message, you either email me, at woody at com, or go into the app. I always check the Real Life Real Crime Community app first, y'all, because I have so many different social media pages, like all the Facebook pages, you know, the crew page. I think we're over 42,000 members just in it alone. But y'all keep sending me information about these cases to all these different pages I have. And sometimes I don't get there for a week or two to check them. If you make it real easy, if you just email me. And if you're going to... Ask me to look at a case. I'm gonna ask you to please provide me with the everything that you have—news articles and, and, if you have the case file or whatever. Otherwise, we're wasting each other's time. You know, I get the requests every day. Oh, you know, look at my Uncle Jack's story, but you don't say anything about who your Uncle Jack was or where they lived or anything else, right? So help me. I promise to try. To help everyone, it doesn't mean I'm going to work your case, but if I can give you some advice or something, I will. All right, so it's important. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but you're check out my TikTok; it's real life, real crime. Uh, of course, we have Instagram and all that good stuff, and tune into the daily show, people. It's it's fire in its own way, but next week, swim someone who isn't me. It's coming out, podcast by Woody Overton, and I'm your host, Woody Overton, the host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast, and until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder you. Peace. Yeah, the rights remain silent. They say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. Do you understand your rights?